Terra incognita spectator. Terra incognita spectator. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's author is Richard Harland, who's a multiple Aurealis Award winner and writer of adult and young adult science fiction, fantasy and horror. As well as showing a remarkable flexibility in his choice of subject matter, Richard is a consummate storyteller and a favourite at readings amongst convention goers. Here Richard flexes his horror muscles as we read the journal of a young man whose experiments into changing his perceptions go horribly wrong. Sixth of June. At last, I've got something to start this journal with. Something so small and yet so marvellous, completely unplanned. I was sitting reading in the back garden under the pear tree. I'd been reading poetry several hours a day, ever since the start of the holidays, trying to get into the mood. But it was warm and sunny, and I drifted into a kind of haze. Then I heard this fast, furious liquid noise. I knew it must come from the stream at the bottom of the garden, so I went to look. I saw it immediately, like a live thing, a struggling thing in the smooth flowing water. It was where a branch had got jammed in the stones and muddy bed of the stream, so that one end reached up just as far as the surface. The water bulged up and over the end of the branch in a sudden fast bulb of liquid, like a gelatinous muscle on top of the water. So strangely spasmodic it was, terrifyingly furious, always about to break loose, about to plunge down under the surface or race off downstream, but always somehow remaining the same. There was even a definite shape to it, a long bulging oval like an eye, rapidly, continuously winking. Ah, I don't know if there's a poem in this. I started thinking about a poem while I stood watching, but I'm not going to push it. As Stephen says, look after the perceptions, and the poems will look after themselves. I'm on the way now. 7th of June. Went up to town today. It's amazing. A year ago, all I wanted to do was get away, to university, to Cambridge. Thurlow seemed boring and oppressive and narrow-minded. Yet today, I found myself almost falling in love with the place. Everything so incredibly familiar, so unchanged, and the people too, so unchanged. I talked to Mr Betts in the fish shop, and Mrs Stowell, and a dozen more. The same feeling continued when I came back home. This plain old house with its stuffy middle-class furniture. But all exactly as it ought to be. And my mother in the kitchen, my father coming back for lunch. I could have hugged them. I don't get to feel like this too often. 8th of June. Last night. An extraordinary dream. I woke up straight after and forced myself to scribble some notes about it. I put a pen and pad of paper ready on the chair beside my bed. Stephen says you should train yourself to record your dreams. He says that dreams are the poets in a poet. But I've hardly ever remembered interesting dreams until this one. It started with dancing. 
We were in a ballroom, all white and gold decoration, ornate glass chandeliers. A band on the platform played delicate, tinkling music. The dancers were my whole family, uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents on both sides. I was there writing in a book exactly like this journal. I think I was some kind of historian, recording distinctive family characteristics. Then the dance started to become very strange, as though everyone was stumbling and recovering in an irregular, swooping, swaying motion, this way and that, a sickening stop-go, like the hovering and darting of a fly. And yet, it was all part of the dance. The tinkling music swooped and swayed along with the dancers. It occurred to me that we were on a ship, and the ship was sinking. Perhaps I'd been on a ship in some earlier part of the dream. The dancers were swaying and stumbling because the ballroom floor was tilting from side to side as the ship sank. It was a kind of dream logic deduction. We couldn't feel the tilting ourselves because we were moving with the ship, but the change in the dance was the clue to what was happening. I went across to the band to tell them to stop their music. The members of the band were now dressed in ragtime stripes and blue and white top hats, and they were capering about and rolling their eyes so that the whites showed. They seemed completely lunatic. I noticed there were ropes rigged up around the platform, pinning them in. The next thing I remember was that the ship had already sunk, and I was in the water. I was terrified of drowning, but someone supported me from behind, someone with strong, powerful arms swimming and towing me along. I tried to turn my head, but I couldn't manage to see who it was. Instead, I seemed to be looking down, down, through endless depths of black water. And there, far below, descending to the bottom of the sea, was the ship itself, like a tiny toy. I could see its rows of glittering lights. I could even hear the dance music tinkling on. The sight made me incredibly giddy, as though I was standing looking down from the top of a cliff. That was when I woke up and scribbled my notes. 10th of June at last, I found my journal again. When I came back home yesterday, I searched for it everywhere. I wanted to record my experience on the embankment. And now today it turns up on top of the kitchen crockery cabinet. I can't imagine why I put it there. This was my experience. I was walking beside the railway track when I saw a large round stone that had split in two. Only, I didn't think about what it was at first. That's what I've been doing, allowing the special perceptions to grow and flower without categorising or limiting them. So what I saw was the inside of the stone, like a mirror, a sheer blue-black flinty colour, as though dark light had been trapped in a crystal. There was so much difference, whole worlds of difference, between this pure inward thing and its outward appearance, its ordinary dull, brown, dusty covering. And then I saw how many other dull, brown, dusty stones there were on the embankment, and I thought, so they're all like this inside. It was like a revelation. Everywhere the secret intensity, the hidden power, and it's the poet's job to uncover it. 11th of June. I wrote to Stephen today. He's staying in Cambridge over the holiday. I describe my new experiences, but only in a general way. Somehow I don't want to tell anyone the contents of my journal, not even Stephen. I'm beginning to think this journal will be my true poem, much more than any separate poems that might come out of it. I can't help feeling that something great, something wonderful is happening to me. I'm following Stephen's theories about training oneself to hold on to the most subliminal perceptions, but I'm really living what he only theorises. Maybe I'm getting overconfident, but I believe... No, I won't put it into words, but I have such immense hopes for myself. 
12th of June. I haven't been reading so much lately. I take in a few lines of a poem and immediately my thoughts start to drift. It's as though the mere idea of poetry is enough to put me in the mood. In fact, I haven't done much of anything today, not since slicing my hand this morning. It was incredibly stupid. I was going to cut myself a hunk of bread and I ran the blade of the big kitchen knife lightly across the palm of my hand. Testing for sharpness, I suppose. And I must have got that movement confused with the movement of actually cutting into the loaf because instead of pressing lightly, I pressed very heavily. I could hardly believe the deep slit I made in my palm. There was blood everywhere. It was very difficult to tighten a bandage in a way that would stop the flow. Luckily, it wasn't my writing hand. 13th of June. Another strange and vivid dream last night. It started out with the poetry workshop, our Tuesday night workshop in Stephen's room at college. Stephen, Kerry, Justin, Denise and all the regulars were there, plus a few others. I remember one man with a red tie who seemed familiar in the dream, though totally unfamiliar when I repicture him now. We were talking about an amazingly good poem that Justin had photocopied and handed around for discussion. It was anonymous, that's how the workshop operates, unless the author wants to own up at the end. But this time, even Justin didn't seem to know who the author was. It was a poem about a fire breaking out in a house, which turned out to be my house, this house. And as the dream went on, the poem became a story about me. I was a small child again, playing in our front room, and there was sunlight coming in through the front window. Then, somehow, the sunlight caught fire and changed into flames. I stopped playing and watched the flames, but I couldn't move. Even in the dream, I thought, I'm too young to move. Then a great splintering crash made the door shake. I knew that it was the firemen coming to rescue me. And soon enough, there was an axe head appearing through the wood. But still, they were chopping too slow. They weren't going to get to me in time. Suddenly, I was in a state of panic, and out of the panic came an impossible switch. All at once, I was no longer the child waiting to be rescued, but the fireman on the other side of the door. I was the one wielding the axe. I was strong and powerful, chopping and chopping. But now the chopping seemed strangely pointless, merely going through the motions. That was the end of the dream. It was as though it had run out of anything more to happen, so it had stuck in a rut. 14th of June. Went for a long walk today. But the special perception didn't happen outside, strange enough. It happened when I came home, when I was in the kitchen. It was a very simple thing. There's a carpet in the kitchen, patterned in an intricate Turkish design of red and green. What I saw, first of all, was a distortion of the pattern in one small area of the carpet, a kind of greasy blur, a filminess. As I moved my head, the distorted lines and colours kept sliding and running together in a repulsive sort of way. I backed off the carpet and stood staring at it. It took me a very long time to realise what it was, a circular glass ashtray lying upside down on the carpet. I was seeing the pattern through the glass. That was all it was. When I bent down to... What the hell happened then? I was writing a sentence about the ashtray and suddenly my mind blanked out. I couldn't remember the word I was going to use. Then I couldn't remember the idea I was trying to express, or what the idea connected to, or what I was doing, or why, where, anything at all. I was casting around in my mind for some solid memory, and I couldn't find anything at all. The more I panicked, the more the emptiness kept opening out, wider and wider. Maybe it only lasted a fraction of a minute, but it was scary, very scary. I don't want to get like that again. I'll continue this journal some other time. 15th of June. I blame that ashtray thing. 
It must have been still in my thoughts when I went to bed, and it came through in a frightening dream. The dream began when I was walking along a lane, like some of the lanes around Thurlow, except that the surface of the ground was covered with white sand. White sand with green banks on either side, and yellow wheat fields spreading all around. It was a dream in colour, and the colours were wonderfully intense. Then I became aware of something transparent and shapeless on the sand, almost under my feet. It was a jellyfish, and, at the same time, it was the distorted, filmy illusion produced by the glass ashtray. But I thought of it as a jellyfish in the dream. I stepped around it, but then there was another, and another, and another. For some reason I couldn't slow down. I had to keep walking faster and faster, desperately twisting and turning to stop from putting my feet into the transparent, blurry shapes. I knew in my mind that I was being forced off the path, off the path, up the bank, to walk across the wheat field. But it was very important not to have to walk across the wheat field. Then another fear started up, completely arbitrary, not connected to anything, coming into the dream out of nowhere at all. So stupid and irrational, in a way that even dreams ought not to be irrational. It was as though I was waiting for it to happen. It was a fear of someone standing behind me, Someone standing very close behind me, even as I was walking faster and faster. But now I was no longer exactly walking. I was gliding, gliding, hardly conscious of moving at all. I was almost expecting it when the cuff of a jacket appeared over my shoulder. And my arms were held in, locked against my sides. And then the hands. I can't begin to describe the horrible intimacy of those hands. Strong, powerful hands that clamped over my face and blocked off my breathing. I knew that my nostrils were being squeezed between someone's thumb and forefinger, and at the same time, impossibly, a pressure was applied against my neck like a tight band. I couldn't struggle. I could feel the strength in those hands increasing, while my own strength ebbed away. I woke up with my head pounding, ears ringing, gasping for breath, as though it had all really happened. I still seemed to feel the imprint of those hands like a physical sensation on my face. 19th of June Four days since I last wrote in this journal. It's been nothing much to write. In a way, I'm glad. I'm still nervous about what I've been calling my special perceptions. I don't want them leading on to other things, like that experience of total blank out, like that bad dream. I haven't remembered any dreams for the past few nights. The house has been in turmoil, with my parents preparing for their fortnight in Spain. They leave in three days' time. I feel somehow cut off and distant from them, as though we're moving on separate planets. Perhaps it's because those bad experiences keep preying on my mind. This evening, I got to the state where I had to do something about it. I had to take another look at that illusion of filminess on the kitchen carpet. I found the same glass ashtray and put it down on the carpet in exactly the same position. But I couldn't recapture the illusion. The more I looked at it, the more I couldn't believe I'd ever seen anything other than a glass ashtray. Suddenly, I realised my father was watching me from the doorway. Watching me staring at an upturned ashtray. What must he have thought? How long had he been watching? But all he said was, What's that ashtray doing on the floor? Do you knock it down, Chris? Then he went across and picked it up. He made some comment about how clumsy I've been getting lately. So that had anything to do with it. 20th of June. I have to check up on everything now. I can't help it. It's the only way to stop from worrying. Like half an hour ago, I took a spoon from the cutlery door and sat down to the table for breakfast. But 
then I just stayed sitting, as if I was waiting for something. Then I realised what it was. The fingers and palm of my right hand were wet. My first thought was blood. It was only yesterday I took the bandage off my hand. But it wasn't blood, only water. But where from? I couldn't remember touching anything wet. In the end I worked it out. It must have been the handle of the cutlery drawer. The last person to open it must have had wet hands. Still, I had to go and check it. I can't explain the feeling of relief when I discovered I was right. 21st of June. What's wrong with me? I thought I was getting back to normal. And then last night I had another vivid dream. But this time it wasn't what happened in the dream itself that was disturbing. I dreamed I was in a long, corridor-like room, with iron beds lined up parallel to the walls. It was like some kind of institution, but old-fashioned, with a sense that this was all taking place a long time in the past. I was one of the people milling around. We were protesting about something, perhaps the fact that there weren't enough beds for us all. Some of the other faces were familiar. They may be from other dreams rather than real life. I remember the man with the red tie, the one who was in my dreams a week or so ago. His smart red tie didn't seem to match his other clothes, which were of loose grey, sack-like material. Then someone came walking down the corridor and speaking in a firm voice. It was the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I knew that the way you know things in dreams. And he was uttering phrases like, Your protests are useless, and the situation is inevitable. And when I heard those phrases, a great sense of fate and doom washed over me. At that point, I woke up and switched on the light. I wasn't worried about the dream itself. But then I noticed a ball of paper on the chair beside my bed. A sheet of paper rolled up into a very tight round ball. Rolled up when? How? By whom? I picked it up and smoothed it out. It was a sheet from the pad I'd left out for recording my dreams. There was nothing written on it, no message. And yet it was like a message nonetheless. I must have done it myself, while fast asleep, in the middle of the night. I tried repeating the operation with another sheet of paper. I had to roll the paper round and round between my hands to create a ball so very small and tight. How could I have performed such a tricky operation without waking up? Is this some version of sleepwalking? I can't help thinking that I did it while I was having that dream. 22nd of June My parents left on their holiday today. The taxi arrived at 11 o'clock and I helped load their cases and waved them off. I had the impression they were worried about me, and more than just the worry over me looking after myself in the house for two weeks. But I acted positive and cheery. I felt positive and cheery. I was thinking how I could order my own life at last, without having someone always watching over my shoulder. And then, right in the middle of that positive, cheery feeling, it happened. As the taxi disappeared, I went to go back in through the front gate, and I couldn't open the latch. I was doing something else at the same time. Don't know how to explain it. It was something to do with my arm, as though my arm was caught between two different movements. I was blocked, immobilised, bent over the gate in a strange, unnatural way. At least it seemed strange and unnatural to me. Mrs Heinard from next door was standing around. She'd just been seeing my parents off too. I don't think she noticed anything. But I couldn't try again, not with her there. I couldn't risk it happening again in front of her. It was a hollow, sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. So I turned away and walked off down the street, pretending I had something to do before going back in. I took a five minutes walk to nowhere, and when I returned, the problem had vanished. My arm behaved completely normally. My hand opened the latch first time. It's seven o'clock as I'm writing this in the evening. 
I'm going to go out later tonight to practice opening and closing the latch when there's no one around. Just to be sure. Just to see if that strangeness happens again. 23rd of June. I've had another dream. I'm afraid of what it might mean. It's the recurrence that frightens me. I dreamed that I was going uptown. I didn't want to meet anyone, and I deliberately crossed to the other side of the street when anyone approached. For some reason, it was especially Mrs Stowell I didn't want to meet. But as I went along High Street, I began to think I saw her features in every face. To escape, I took a turn into Bridge Street. Next thing, I'd followed Bridge Street right out of town and turned off along the path by the river. But there was still someone coming towards me from the opposite direction. I left the path and walked away from the river, across Reese's wheat field. The other person went on past along the path. But when I veered to head back towards the river, I saw that she'd also left the path. She was circling around behind me through the field. The thought passed through my mind then. Mrs Stowell had been drinking. Perhaps the thought came from the fact that my mother once told me a story about seeing Mrs Stowell drunk. I was determined not to let her get behind me. I started circling around as she circled around me. Round and round we went, about twenty metres apart, neither of us looking straight at the other. It was somehow important not to recognise her, not to admit that she was there. So we performed a kind of ritualistic circle, waist-deep in the golden wheat. The circle swirled all across the field, at one time on top of the hill, another time almost back at the bridge, but always exactly the same distance apart. It was no longer Mrs Stowell, though. I no longer thought of the person as Mrs Stowell, not her at all. It was the man with the red tie. That was who I was afraid of. Still, I didn't look straight at him, and he didn't look straight at me. But now I could glimpse the tie around his neck, a strange, unpleasant red colour. I couldn't tell what his face was like. Somehow the tie dominated everything else about him. That was all there was to the dream. We kept on circling around each other like the opposite ends of a rotor, circling and circling and circling, until I finally woke up. I was covered in sweat. 26th of June. Three whole days and nothing's happened. Maybe it'll come all right after all. I've got into the habit of knocking myself out with three glasses of whiskey every night. I've got a store of four bottles, so I won't run dry in a hurry. Another thing I've done is move out of my own bedroom. I've made up a bed for myself and the settee in the front room. It seems to be working. No dreams and no sleepwalking, or whatever it was I did that night. I've hardly been out at all, except to buy my bottles of whiskey. I went up to Macy's off-licence and it was like that dream. I didn't want to meet anyone. I didn't cross to the other side of the street, but I kept my head down and pretended not to see people. I dreaded having to make polite conversation. I'd been planning to buy bread and tins of food and some vegetables, but in the end I just went to the off-licence and came straight home. Home seems very strange, now that I'm sleeping downstairs. Everything's so familiar, hardly changed since I was a child, yet I'm living in it like a total outsider. My shirt and trousers hang over the piano and piano stool. My dirty clothes are piled under the table. There's a towel lying on top of the bookcase. It's as though I'm camping out in someone else's house. I can't be bothered tidying up. A letter from Stephen arrived today, full of names. Rilke, Hoffmanstahl, Bachmann, Vallejo, Alberti, all the poets he thinks I ought to read. So pretentious, so Cambridge, to help me open my mind to the potential and equivocal, he says. What does he know about it? I only wish I could close my mind down. 28th of June. Still nothing happened. 
Maybe I've beaten it. I try not to think about anything much, a sort of minimalist existence, letting things happen. Life has become a floating cloud of random impulses. My strongest impulse is the impulse to go to the kitchen for something to eat. Dozens of times a day, I find myself wandering through the kitchen door. But when I get there, I know there's nothing I really want to eat. Maybe it's because I've already run out of most of my favourite foods. The shelves are getting very bare ever since I failed to stock up at the supermarket the other day. That must be the explanation for this recurring whim. There's a hankering in my taste buds, but nothing to satisfy the hankering. It's very stupid. I have to keep reminding myself not to go into the kitchen. If I stop reminding myself, then sooner or later I'm drifting back through the door again. Middle of the night. It's him! Of course! I've been trying to avoid admitting it, but it's been him all along. The man in the red tie! He came to me in a dream, in a hundred dreams, on and on through the night. Again and again I dreamed I was waking up, but it was always only another level of dream. And on every level, in every scene, he kept finding me, coming after me, trying to work his way around behind me. I remember only the most vivid scenes clearly. One scene was in a theatre with rich plush seats and carpets and incredibly ornate gilt decoration. Another scene was a green paddock, unreal, technicolour green, and there was a red, rusted wreck of a car in the middle of the grass. Another scene was on the beach at Ilfracombe, a perfect memory of when we used to go there for holidays, and I was wading out towards my special rock, my island. Scene after scene after scene, but always he discovered a way of getting into them. He was the swimmer further along the beach. He was someone sitting five rows back in the audience. He was circling around behind me through the paddock. Even a patch of shadow would start turning into him. Scene after scene after scene, and I had to keep running, climbing, scrambling away from him. It was impossible to find a safe place to hide. I could always escape, but I'd never escape for good. In the end, it was almost mechanical. Even some of the same scenes repeated themselves. A terrible sense of inevitability came over me. Whenever I glanced round behind, there he was, lolling his head and rolling his eyes. That's what he was doing, lolling his head and rolling his eyes. His head rocked as though there were no bones in his neck. His eyeballs swiveled as though loose in their sockets. Horrible, sickening motion. White, round globes of his eyes. Until finally I awoke for real. I was exhausted. Exhausted by terror, if that makes sense. But at least he'd never managed to catch me, I thought. At least he'd never managed to come up close behind. Then I felt a wetness on my wrist. I turned on the light and saw small lines of red over the sheet. There was a scratch mark on my wrist, not deep, but oozing blood, and on another on the back of my hand, another on my other hand, still more on my chest, dozens of tiny marks, most of them not even bleeding. Some were fresh, but some were old, maybe days old, only I'd never noticed before. I jumped up and rushed to the bathroom, to the mirror in the bathroom. I counted thirty separate scratches. It was like discovering some terrible secret crime that had been committed. And then I discovered what was responsible. There was blood under my fingernails under two fingernails that were slightly longer than the rest. I felt like throwing up. I took the nail scissors and cut my fingernails, all of them, back to the quick. But what's the use? I can't believe it's just a coincidence, the dream and the scratch marks. I dare and go back to sleep. I don't trust the whiskey to work anymore. I'm sitting writing this on the front room table. I dare and go back to sleep. 29th of June. I've been thinking about it. I know what it is about him. The man with the red tie is a lunatic. 
That's why he rolls his eyes and lolls his head. He's completely, irrecoverably insane. But how has he got into my dreams and into my life too? What is he, some sort of psychic entity trying to take possession of me? A goddamn ghost? I'd like to believe it. I want to believe it. But why would there be a ghost in this house? There's never been anything strange before, and I've lived here since I was a child. I've never heard of any weird or violent events connected with this house happening even before then. You couldn't keep weird or violent events secret in a place like Thurlow. I went to the window just now and looked out through the curtains. Day is dawning. There's a light creeping up across the sky. I have to make plans. I have to do something. OK. No panic. No surrender. I can work it out calmly. If there's some kind of psychic entity involved, if that's what he is, then, OK. Where does he come from? How did he get released? Then I try to think back. Everything that's happened recently seems totally confused in my mind. I can't remember what came first and what came second. But I don't have to rely on memory. I've got this journal to give me dates and events. I'm going to reread every entry very carefully. There must be clues. Later. I think I've got it. The carpet in the kitchen. It can't be an accident that so many of these strangenesses tie in with the kitchen... And the crucial moment, I believe the crucial moment was when I saw that filmy shape on the carpet, when the pattern was distorted by the glass ashtray. Is that where he comes from? Something that was locked into the pattern? I'm certain I'm right. I hope I'm right. I went and studied that very same spot on the carpet. There's only one thing to do. Destroy it. I'm going to rip out the whole strip of carpet and burn it. This is my plan. I'm writing it down to make sure it won't be forgotten, not even if I do suffer one of my lapses, my losses of contact. So, I wait until the middle of the night, until one o'clock. I can't do it in the day. It would be too hard to explain if anyone saw. I've set one o'clock as my starting time. First, I'll rip out the strip of carpet, roll it up, and carry it to the bonfire patch in the back garden. I don't think the rest of the carpet matters, only the spot where I saw the filmy shape. At least that's what I'll try first. Next, I'll get the can of lawnmower petrol from the garage and sprinkle it over the roll. Then I'll set a light and burn it completely to ashes. As I was writing that down, I had the sudden thought, how am I going to explain this missing strip of carpet to my parents? Suddenly I remembered they're going to be back in less than a week. So soon. It seems like a million years away. I can't be bothered worrying about it now. I'll make something up when the time comes. If the time comes. 8 p.m. I had to put a chair in front of the kitchen door. Twice today, I found myself with my hand on the handle, about to wander through into the kitchen. The chair will block my way. Remind me not to go in there when there's no reason. I don't want to go in there when there's no reason. Still five hours to go. When I looked out through the curtains, the darkness was starting to come down. The garden was filling up with shadows. Out in the street, the streetlights were already on. I mustn't fall asleep. Not that above all. Yet I'm afraid I might just do it, in some accidental moment when I'm not paying attention, when I'm not keeping a watch on myself. I'll go for a walk, that's the best answer. A long, long walk until one o'clock. I hate the thought of going outside, not just because of meeting people. I hate the thought of going anywhere near those places where I had my, my special perceptions, my stupid, bloody special perceptions. But I'll find ways to walk that don't remind me. 2.30am. I did it! I burned the whole strip of carpet. Nothing special happened when that particular spot went up in flames. I don't know what I expected. I expected something. Will it work? Please, please let it work. But I don't feel very confident now. 
I daren't go to sleep. I still daren't go to sleep. What made me believe it was the carpet? But if it wasn't the carpet, if that wasn't where he came from, what happens next? I keep thinking there's something pressing against my shoulders from behind. I keep moving my shoulders, reaching with my hand, trying to brush something away. Maybe I'm only imagining it because it's what I'm afraid of. I know how the idea arises. I know what it would mean if it was true. But maybe it isn't true. But I'm afraid. I'm so afraid. 3.15am. This is my final entry. I hope someone reads it and understands. I hope someone can make sense of what's happened to me. How could I ever have believed it came from the carpet? Sheer desperation. Now I know it all. The truth is so much simpler. He told me about it himself. Now he's behind me, even as I write. I can close my eyes and see him with his red tie round his neck. I can feel the lolling movements of his lunatic rolling head. I don't need to dream it. But he won't do anything for a while. Not now that I've come through into the kitchen. I've brought my journal in here, and I'm sitting writing at the kitchen table. He doesn't need to push any more. He knows he's won. He told me about it in gestures and words, horrible, bubbling words coming out of his mouth. Or maybe they weren't proper words at all, only slobbery sounds. But I still understood his meaning. How could I fail to understand? He is me, Christopher Calder. He comes from me. So obvious. I knew he was somehow familiar, even though I never got a good look at him, even though his face was always stretched and distorted in crazy mad expressions. The last face I ever thought of, the one face you never see in ordinary dreams, my own face. But not me as I am, me as I'm going to become, the potential me, the me that will be. I've opened him up in myself, I've haunted myself with my own future, with my own oncoming insanity. He's letting me write this but he's starting to come up closer behind. And not only behind, but through me, closing in over me, immensely strong and powerful. Isn't that what they would say about madmen? Not long now. I won't be in control much longer. I'm sitting writing this at the kitchen table with the big kitchen knife in front of me. I laid it out on the table next to my journal. But now it's time to close the journal. Very soon I shall pick up the knife and make myself a bright red tie. Terra incognita reviews. This month's book review is Angel Rising by Dirk Flintheart. Angel Rising, the first of a new novella series by 12th Planet Press, is set in the new series universe. New series is a collaborative universe containing stories by some of Australia's best-known authors, all centering on the planet of new series, whose inhabitants had chosen to reenact an 18th century level of civilization. High tech is forbidden, and the proctors, genetically enhanced guardians, are charged by the Lady Governor to make sure it stays that way. Flintheart has dabbled in the new series universe before, so he comes to this story with a firm grip on the finer detail and idiosyncrasies of this world. He's also author of a number of high-action stories featuring the enigmatic Red Priest, as well as being a martial arts and fencing student, 
so all the elements for a swashbuckling adventure would appear to be in place. Proctor George Gordon is sent to the Sunrise Isles of New Series where the inhabitants are reenacting feudal Japan, following reports of a meteorite coming to land somewhere nearby. Gordon is an instantly engaging character, roguish, witty and handy in a fight. No sooner has he set foot on the docks than he dispatches three samurai in some beautifully described swordplay and sees off a fourth. His hopes of entering the island incognito in Tatos, he joins his shapeshifter contact Shima and starts the search for the crash site. But as you might expect, and hope, this isn't an ordinary meteorite strike, and there are powerful forces, both on planet and off, that want what it contains. If you think Angel Rising is an exciting, funny and engaging adventure romp, you're absolutely right. Flint Hart has a lot of fun with this piece. The voice of Gordon is very strong, the plans of the enemy typically conniving and dastardly, and the prize is something that strikes at the core not only of new series, but the continued existence of space-going humanity. And did I mention the cohort of ninja nuns? Three stars. Angel Rising by Dirk Flintheart is available in Australia from 12th Planet Press. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of the publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.